You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where we go from PSA, as in Pretty Stupid Automaton, to PSA, as in Public Service Announcement. Somebody, somebody put something in my drink. Again, and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name's Sean Ingle, and I'm about ready to get my two-year pen for covering Green Lantern comics from the cover date of June 1990 until the cover date of November 2004. I've also got a special extra emphasis on covering Guy Gardner books. Unfortunately, I gave up covering Guy Gardner books for the sake of my health. No, not for the sake of my health. I'm just making crap up. Today we're going to be looking at a couple of issues of Green Lantern stuff. The first book in Green Lantern 90 is, well, Kyle reconnecting with one of his friends from Los Angeles. One of his friends who is a very hideous stereotype alcoholic. Last time out we had Kyle dealing with a giant robot, now we have him dealing with his alcoholic friends. It's a big old public service announcement that we'll get into later. Plus, we also have a issue of Green Lantern Corps Quarterly, number three, that deals with uh, some issues with Alan Scott. Got a good story from him, another good story from Nort, and then some average stories as well. The Green Lantern Quarterly book has been hit and miss. And although I'm glad that I'm getting to read stuff about Alan Scott, and Roger Stern does a great job of uh, scripting out the character, the rest of the stories are, well... They feel like they were just leftovers from the era of the Green Lantern core book and backup issues that just never made it into the book. But we'll get into all of that, as well as some emails, after I play these promos for some excellent podcasts. So as soon as we get back from our podcast promo break, we'll charge headlong along into the very heavy-handed, very melodramatic story about alcoholism in Green Lantern number 90. Stay tuned, folks. I sense a disturbance in the force. You always sense a disturbance in the force. We're doomed. I don't like this. No! Really pissed me off. 
Star Wars Monthly Mondays, available the first Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. Hi, my name is Mike, and I like comic books. Okay, so what do you think about Ben Affleck being Batman? No, I said I like comic books. That's a movie, and I couldn't care less. Well, it's a comic book movie. Really? Did you go see the magazine movie? Or do you watch the television book? I like comic books. You know, those things make for paper, especially the old ones. Whoa, those things. Are they CGC 9.8? No, you're missing the point. I like to actually read comic books, especially the old ones. I like them so much, I even build a website to tell other people about them. Does it have any information about uh, Avengers 2? No, it has info about actual comic books. Lots of covers, creator credits, character appearance lists, story synopsis notes, and so much more. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Where can I find it? It's at mikesamazingworld.com. Do I have to read anything? Reading makes my brain hurt. You can just look at the pictures if you want. Or you can listen to my podcast, where I talk about the history of DC Comics, especially the old ones. So I can listen to a comic book podcast? It's a podcast about comic books. You can find it at twotruefreaks.com. What's it called? Mike's Amazing World of DC History. History? You mean like before Twitter? Yes, the world actually did exist long before Twitter. My show is for comic book fans, especially the old ones. So check out Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the website, and listen to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast, for information and fun related to actual comic books, especially the old ones. And we're back. So before we get into coverage of Green Lantern number 90, let's go take a look at the Just One of the Guys email bag and see what kind of letters we've got this time out. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> And starting out this time, we get a letter from Robert Ward titled uh, Green Lantern Quarterly Quarterly. Sorry, entitled Green Lantern Corps Quarterly Number Six. He writes in, starting out, Dear Sean, it was just a couple of days ago I, since I emailed you a thanks for the show and how I finally bought a lot of guide comics from eBay and couldn't resist wait, wanting to thank you one more time for reasons that will come apparent. Okay, looking forward to that. I'm missing several issues that your love has made me want to read, thus making me particularly sad. To name a couple, Number Twelve, Yesterday Sins Part Two, all good one number 23 uh the the second part of the nazis on dinosaurs episode of guy gardner and particularly number 42 gal gardner warrior that's odd because i've seen a lot of those gal gardeners around those you know maybe that's just here locally I, i've seen them in the back issue bins but uh, keep looking robert i hope you find those because uh the gal gardner one not essential it was okay but uh you want yesterday's sins and the uh, second part of that uh, initial Bo Smith storyline, because those are just great. Mitch Bird's art is fun in it, and anytime Guy Gardner can punch Nazi dinosaurs, always worth it. 
Continuing on, he says, uh, well, today, reading the only issue I could find of Green Lantern Corps quarterly, since I've been a huge TL fan since I was a kid, at this tiny quote-unquote collector con, issue number six. When I finished it, I saw a nice little tie-in slash quiz about Guy Gardner and the story arc Yesterday Sins, and it made me sob in sadness, and I thought I would share. The question was, question five, are you a guy's guy? And it said, guy will, dot, dot, dot. Option D, have a sex change thanks to some nasty aliens, and B, guy no more. Wow, that was pretty prescient. I don't even think that was even... I don't think that was in the works, because 42 came out a long time after uh, Green Lantern Corps Quarterly Number 6, because that came out, uh, that came out you know, at least three months before uh, Emerald Twilight was starting. So, yeah, that's interesting. He continues on and said, If you don't know the answers, it directed the aforementioned story arc. Fun fact, though, Green Lantern Quarterly 6 was released on Autumn 93 and Guy Garden number 42, which featured Guy being transformed into a woman by a quote-unquote nasty alien, a Voltarian named Dementor, was released in May 96. Well, it was even, it was like three years almost, so. And he says, that's a nice little find. To make sure I wasn't nuts, I double-checked with Google to brush up on the issue and found a nice little post on Green Lantern Bus Forever about issue number 42, which even had a comment from the man himself, Bo Smith. Just wow. Yeah, Bo Smith has actually gone over to uh, Sally's Facebook page, not Facebook page, but Sally's blog, the Green Lantern Bus Forever blog, and he's posted there. And Sally is really enamored with Bo Smith, and I hate to say it, as kind of a fanboy, so am I. He's just an amazing, amazing person. And uh, I'm going to keep saying it. I'm so glad that I got to talk to him before. But it, uh, Robert finishes it up saying, Thank you for introducing me to the unrelenting awesomeness of Bo Smith. I hope you're happy. I'm certain Bo Smith is more happy than I am, but I'm I'm glad you're enjoying it. Uh, like I've said, one of the reasons I've done this podcast is to get people interested in these comics that were pretty much overlooked. The 90s had their good comics in there, and they're just so overshadowed most of the time by the extreme nature. And when you can find something good in there and find something that's well-written and has some really decent art in it, it's, it's a treasure. And these Guy Gardner books, for me, really were. Our next letter comes from the man, the myth, the legend, the deranged cop on the edge, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. Luke writes in with the title, Round 3, well, you get the idea. He says, Sean, just finished listening to episode 85, the, fina the finale of the Fatality storyline, try saying that ten times fast, Kyle Rayner as a barbarian hero. Hmm. Didn't we have a Guy Gardner cover like that way back in the early days of the show? I think we might have. Uh, it's not... It, it kind of, yeah, oh yeah, the one where Guy was atop the uh, mound of villains in the sort of Boris Vallejo pose, holding the uh, uh, sword high above his head, where with uh, that whore uh, Carrie Limbo at his side. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Luke continues, I bought more by Guy in that role than Kyle, but that's the point, yes? Not to sound like Death's Head. Still, a blow-off to the story. This seemed like an appropriately brutal end. Cal had to see what he was made of, and if he had the intestinal fortitude to do what he had to do to survive against a foe with no mercy. Like Dylan says in Alien 3, you're gonna die. The only question is how you check out. If you want it on your feet or on your f***ing knees. Begging. I ain't much for begging. Nobody ever gave me nothing, so I say f*** that thing. Let's fight it. Unfortunately, Fatality makes the mistake of showing your victim the one thing that they can use to escape. 
Oh, those evil masterminds. Will they ever learn? <laughs> Obviously not. Still a cool ending to the story all told. Dr. Savannah running for mayor of Fawcett City? I can see it. His campaign slogan? Why settle for the lesser of two evils? Uh, I think that only works best when you're running Cthulhu against someone. Yeah, Cthulhu is definitely the lesser of two evils. I do remember the Electric Superman storyline. I remember it being actually pretty decent, Luke continues, a demonstration that it's not the powers or costume that makes Superman recognizable, it's who he is. If I'm remembering correctly, that editorial, that the editorial intent of the story in lieu of litigation about the ownership of the character. Well, that makes sense. They changed Superman around because uh, the Siegel and Schuster heirs were having their problems with uh, the character, and they might have to essentially give you a different Superman than what Siegel and Schuster came up with in order to keep the license of the actual Superman character. So it makes sense. Luke continues, nowadays it's rem remembered as 90 schlock, but at the time, I thought it was pretty neat. Yeah, I mean, yes, it is sort of very 90s, and I think I commented on that in the last episode where we had the Justice League that was basically everyone's 90s version, except for the Martian Manhunter. So, yeah, there you go. And Luke finishes up with, can't wait to hear more Guy Gardner by Bo Smith plus Steel. Thanks for a great show, Luke. Well, thank you, Luke. And we actually have another letter that I'll go ahead and get out of the way from Luke Jack and Eddie. And this was entitled Green Lantern Catches Jade in the Shower. Like that one episode of Who's the Boss? Ooh, I'm betting J. David Weeder and Lee Busby would like to catch Angela Bauer in the shower, if you know what I'm saying. I'm certain you do. Anyway, Luke writes in the letter, says, A very girl power opening song this week, Sean. Yeah, I caught some flack from Thomas DJ about including Avril Lavigne's Girlfriend as the opening song. Caught some flack from Michael Bradley, too. I should have gone with Matthew Sweet, but I wasn't thinking at the time. It's a better song, regardless. Anyhow, continuing with Luke's letter, it goes, Green Lantern number 86 seems a little bit of an odd duck. I imagine that the Big Trouble in Little China segment was so this issue would have some sort of action in it. Yeah, that definitely felt that way, because having Kyle fight, you know, Asian stereotypes hand-to-hand -hand just seemed really out of place in it. Amusingly, uh, Luke continues, this entire story could have been avoided if Jade had left a note in the kitchen saying, quote-unquote, Kyle, I'm in the shower, we'll talk when I get out, signed, Jenny. And also, why the heck is Todd simply strolling into Kyle's apartment without knocking? Um, Three's Company? Yeah, that's what I'm going to go with. Three's Company. That's the answer. Over in Showcase, teaming up Guy and Steel seems very 90s indeed, but that's all right with me. Same here. It was the 90s. There are two big guns, the two sort of, well, not new characters, but new in their iterations characters. And it was a fun just episode or issue to watch them beat the crap out of some people. Luke says, I've read some of Steele's ongoing series from this era, and his book was somewhat was a somewhat unusual mix of street-level crime and superpowers, but fitting the fact that Irons was a Superman family character, so he dealt with the big super baddies, but also black. So of course he had to deal with street gangs. It is comic book law. <sighs> yeah, you get the black characters, and of course, you know, much like Black Lightning and Luke Cage, even though they may have incredible, you know, overly heroic powers, you know, with Black Lightning, the lightning powers that could probably even take down Superman, 
he's relegated to fighting street thugs because that's obviously what a black superhero would do. Sometimes stereotypes aren't so fun. Anyway, Luke, Luke finishes up with, thanks again for the show, Luke. And he finishes up with a PS saying, ah, Sir Mix-a-Lot, a poet for his age if there ever was one. His seminal work, Baby Got Back, spoke to me during my formative years, and it served me well so far. As it should everyone, Luke. As it should everyone. But after that little edited out coughing fit and uh, the uh, end of the emails, I'd like to thank everyone for writing in. Robert, Luke, it's great to have your emails uh, in the email bag. That makes no sense. I appreciate you guys writing in. It's fun reading your emails, and it's great to get feedback from you folks. If you want to email the show, of course, the address is still just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you if you have any uh, notes on the show, and maybe you'll have some opinions about this next issue, because I'm going to have some negative things to say about Green Lantern number 90. Green Lantern number 90 was cover dated September 1997 and released on July 2nd, 1997. Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics helps me with that information. Cover price, again, was $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada, and the title this time out was Drinking Buddies. Writer was Ron Mars, penciler this time was Chris Batista, inker Chip Wallace, colorist Jason Wright, letterer Chris Eliopoulos, associate editors Eddie Braganza and Dana Curtin, and editor Kevin Dooley. It's a typical night at the Heretic Club, as 20-something bros Kyle Rayner and Tyler plot device, didn't have a last name, enjoy the hip early 90s scene, which of course includes scantily clad dancers and plenty of booze. Maybe even a bit too much booze, as Tyler rushes off to the bathroom to pray to the porcelain goddess. Crisis averted and feeling better, Tyler heads back for some more drinking, while Kyle heads out to the alley to get some non-puke smelling air. It's at this time that Kyle sees the green streak of light, reminiscent of the one that he and Alex saw when they were moonbathing, except this time it heads right for him and deposits the blue Oompa Loompa in a robe in its wake. Saying that he'll have to do, the Guardian notices Ganthet hands the last power ring to Kyle, and as he puts it on, he becomes the Green Lantern. This, of course, was all a flashback scene, as our real story starts a few years later in the same club. Kyle is busy with his thoughts as the smoking hot bartender asks if he'd like another beer. Kyle declines and ruminates over all that has happened recently. John Stewart's recent power burst, Jade staying in his apartment, JLA membership, reconciliation with his mom, and now the news that Donna's son and ex-husband were killed in a car accident. Kyle tries to console the love of his life, but she's needing another book and so she had to leave. But fortunately, Kyle's bro Tyler is here to help fill that partner void. The two share tales about their lives as Tyler orders and downs a couple of beers. The smoking hot bartender brings another round, and Kyle starts to get the suspicion that Tyler might have a bit of a drinking problem, as it's only 12.30 and he's already had two beers and a shot. Kyle brushes the thoughts off, and the two discuss where their lives have gone. Kyle's story seems pretty swell, with a stable girlfriend, a decent job, and a cool apartment. Tyler's story? mm, Not so much, as he's got an entry-level job and no girlfriend. Seeing that he's finished the last drink, the smoking hot bartender brings another round. And at this point, Kyle calls Tyler out, saying that he needs to slow down a bit. This works out about as well as you would expect, with Tyler railing against Kyle and smashing the glass against a mirror behind the bar and storming out. 
Saying he'll pay for the damages, Kyle follows Tyler out and confronts his friend with his obvious alcoholism, but Tyler repays the kindness by throwing his friend into the wall of the alley. As Tyler walks off, Kyle marvels at how different the paths their lives have taken when he hears tires squealing and the sound of metal on metal. Fearing the worst, Kyle rings up his uniform and heads out to find Tyler's truck smashed into a delivery truck. Kyle pulls his friend from the wreckage and makes sure that the other victims are okay before he speeds off for the hospital. Some time has passed, and you see Kyle standing over a bruised and broken Tyler. He says that the crash truly opened his eyes and he's ready to face his demons and get help for his drinking problem. Kyle says that's great and he may even know someone who would be willing to help him. Heading into the hall, Kyle brings in May, the smoking hot bartender, who admits that she had problems with alcohol as well, but has been sober for 17 months now. May says she's willing to sponsor him and Tyler accepts the offer, telling Kyle as he leaves that he's ready to change. We then cut to the Rayner household where Kyle is saying goodbye to his mom. The two are happy that they reconnected as Kyle heads back for New York City Mara looks proudly upon her son, the Green Lantern. This is one of these issues that is, and I'm using air quotes up to the microphone, a very special episode of Green Lantern. And it's really not at all very subtle. Tyler's drinking problem is really telegraphed, and the story reeks of very very heavy-handedness. I know drinking to excess is, is bad, and believe me, I know. Uh, I came sort of from a family that had a problem with drinking, but this is really poorly handled. I'm brought back to a couple of episodes that Professor Allen did on his Quarterbin podcast, where he did an action comic storyline with Bloodsport, and then a John Sable story about a person who had contracted AIDS. This story feels a lot more akin to the Bloodsport story where you're hit over the head with this as an important message that you should listen to rather than the story that touches on a subject that evolves naturally from a narrative. Add to that the whole glossing over of Donna's leaving the book and this makes for a less than stellar issue. But we'll get on to more specific notes now with uh, starting off with the cover. Unfortunately, not much to say about it. It pretty much telegraphs where the story is going, and it lets you know that it's going to be about alcoholism. As we see, well, I guess this is Tyler sort of sitting in an alleyway with uh, bottles of booze around him. Unfortunately, it looks like wine rather than beer, but I guess that's really not to the point. With Kyle in his Green Lantern uniform with uh, his hand in a fist and the uh, glowing energy coming from it. Uh, uh, the coloring is nice, I'll give it though, uh, with Kyle's hand and the energy coming from it sort of illuminating the area around his friend, but other than that, it's just another cover that sort of telegraphs what we're going to be seeing inside. Page 1, panel 2. Now, I was, I was a child of the 70s and 80s, but in my college years, I did go to some nightclubs, uh, and I did, uh, kind of dance around, but, uh, Never once did I come into a dance club where the women could come in dressed with just a cut-off t-shirt and very skimpy lingerie underwear. Man, I guess the uh, nightclubs in L.A. had it 
over the uh, nightclubs here in Oklahoma. Maybe because uh, nightclubs in Oklahoma were pretty much predominated by people who like to line dance. Ugh. Then on page two, yeah, it's not telegraphed at all that this is going to be a story about Tyler having a drinking problem, as here we see him running off the ba- running off to the bathroom to go puke, and then immediately afterwards saying, Whew, I need to go back to the bar and get another drink. Ugh, heavy-handedness. Pages three through five, this is essentially another retelling of Kyle getting the ring, However, now we get more emphasis on Kyle looking at the uh, drunk in the alleyway and, again, hinting to the idea that we're going to be dealing about alcoholism in here. Unfortunately, I think this was the drunk that got killed by the uh, shadowy government agency in issue 53, so poor guy. He got a, At least he got a nice trip to Washington before he was so brutally killed in that issue, so uh, I guess that's a good thing. Page 7, panel 1. Another example of how do we know it's the 90s? Well, we've got a smoking hot female bartender wearing a push-up bra, a midriff-bearing tied-up blouse, and a lightning bolt forearm tattoo. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, 90s at its best. I will admit that Chris Batista does a good job of drawing her. His artwork style is a bit more akin to uh, Paul Pelletier's, but uh, he does a good job drawing the characters in here, and uh, his artwork's decent, so I'll... I'll give the give the artwork team a, a pass this time out. But what I won't give a pass is page 8, where they use essentially one sort of splash page with multiple images on it to explain why Donna's gone. Yes, her child and ex-husband died in a car crash, and now she's out of the book. Pretty much, there'll be more stuff talked about with Donna in later issues, but she's gone, and... It irks me that we had this relationship that was building up for almost two years now that had really gotten, I think, intimate that gets wiped away simply because, and I, I'm not certain this is true, but I'm going to kind of take it as true, John Byrne wanted to have Donna Troy in the Wonder Woman book and didn't want to share her elsewhere. He wanted to write her exclusively, so... It's disappointing that it happened. I keep harping on that, but it seems so forced and so quick after their relationship had organically evolved, and it just irks me. Page 11, we get something we don't usually get in modern comics, or modern for the time comics. We get a classic nine-panel grid with a lot of dialogue in it setting up Tyler's problems. You know, he basically has lost his job, or he hasn't lost his job. He went to college and got a degree, but he's working in a sort of dead-end job. He doesn't have a girlfriend, and it's all just exposition setting up the fact that he's got a drinking problem. And, of course, his denial of the drinking problem comes on page 14, panel 3, after he's thrown the, uh, I guess, the shot glass or the beer mug at the mirror over the bar. You get an image of the cracked mirror with the reflection of Tyler's face in it. It's really kind of a cliche to show the uh, broken nature of the character, and it's decent artwork, but it's just a ham-fisted cliche that I'm not really cool with in my Green Lantern book, but 
I guess, you know, every once in a while, a one-off issue that deals with important things is fine. And I commented on it earlier, but here I just want to say on page 16, this is a really nice, you know, grouping of panels that shows off Batista's art. And like I said, it's not quite as stylized or uh, as classic as Daryl Banks' artwork. It is more on the lines of Paul Pelletier, but it's some really good artwork, especially on this uh, final panel here where we see Kyle transforming into his Green Lantern uniform. You see the uh, streams of the Green Lantern energy just kind of washing over him. And it's not its not like a, uh, well, uh, the best way to describe it is it looks sort of like confetti or, you know, uh, just lines of energy coming over him. It's, it's a nice artistic rendering of how he would ring his uh, uniform up. Then on page 18, we get uh, Tyler in the drunken accident. of, And of course, like reality, Tyler was the only one hurt in this accident. Yeah, not like reality at all. Uh, again, heavy handedness, but yeah, uh, we won't have to hopefully deal with this kind of stuff until a little bit later in the uh, comic book run. And then finally on page 21, hey, what a coincidence. The smoking hot bartender from earlier in the issue is actually a member of AA. Wow, isn't that great? <sighs> no, that's just coincidental. And a setup for a very hand-fisted story. Uh, not that I don't enjoy the story, but I'm not a fan of being preached to in comics. And like I said with uh, Professor Allen's, you know, going back to Professor Allen's comments on his show, the Bloodsport issue was very hand-fisted. And I don't know if that's just the nature and time that this came out kind of around when that issue probably would have come out. Eh, no, I think it was a lot earlier, but issue-based issue based comics can be handled so much better than this, and eh, it's good that it has good artwork, and it's good that it has good writing, but again, not a fan of issue-based comics. Your mileage may vary. But what doesn't vary is, uh, Segway School paying off again in spades, is the ads in this issue. Let's go take a look at them. And the front inside cover has an advertisement for the full-length hit movie Beavis and Butthead Duel America. This was actually a really clever movie, and it was, I think, the first big-budget movie that Mike Judge got to do. And he's pretty famous now for Office Space and Idiocracy being incredible movies and being really cult classics, but Beavis and Butthead made their way onto the big screen, and it was an entertaining movie. I think the uh, appeal of Beavis and Butthead was more them watching videos and doing their own sort of metatextual lowbrow commenting on that, so mm, them hemming a uh, full-length movie was probably kind of risky, but they tended to pull it off, so decent movie. The next ad is for War Gods, another Mortal Kombat kind of ripoff, and I'm wondering how good this game was because there's no images of gameplay. It's all just sort of the sort of stylized green computer screen text telling you what the game is about. That really doesn't sell me on the game. The next page has an ad of an elephant ducking a man headfirst into a barrel. 
which makes no sense because, of course, it's for mellow yellow, uh, the sort of faux Mountain Dew drink, which I guess is extreme because it is like having an elephant dunk your head in a barrel. Whatever. Then a few more pages in, it's back to trading cards. And this one is a trading card for baseball players. I guess this is Ken Kamenidi. I have no idea. It's a 3D baseball card, though. And it's offered up by Denny's. So go to Denny's, get yourself a Grand Slam breakfast, and get yourself a Grand Slam 3D baseball card. Yeah. Then the next page is an ad for a movie. For thousands of years, man has been evolution's greatest creation until now. Film with Bean, I'm sorry, Mira Sorvino, Jeremy Northam, Josh Brolin, F. Mary Abraham, and Charles S. Dutton. The movie was Mimic, which, if I recall, was about a giant cockroach who could change into people. Eh, it spawned a lot of uh, sci-fi era type series or sequels, so there's that. Then the next ad is for some die-cast cars, various different ones, including, I don't know, I guess a Plymouth Charger and a Cadillac Roadster. Eh, some of them are sold out, but uh, yeah, I guess for, what is it, uh, 20, uh, where is it, twenty nine ninety five, you could get a uh, set of die-cast cars. So if you're into that, that's kind of neat. Then the next page is the same house ad that we had from last time with all the heroes flying above uh, Batman and Superman. It's a nice ad, and uh, we covered it last time. Then moving on through the book, we get another ad for Tang. No, not that kind of Tang, the orange drink, unfortunately, which is advertised uh, by, hey, a stereotypical orangutan who wants you to play Major League Soccer. So, I guess $15... Would I get you a free biter suck? I don't know. I don't care about this ad at all. It's for Tang, and not the kind of Tang that I'd like to be near. If you know what I'm saying. The DC Watch the Space ad is uh, basically promoting the 10th anniversary of the Dark Knight Returns, the Frank Miller story, which is so highly lauded. In fact, it mentions uh, one of the neat things that Harlan Ellison showed up on an episode of Bill Maher's Politically Incorrect with a Batman 10-year anniversary uh, shirt given to him by Julia Short. So that's neat. The back inside cover is an ad for Skittles. It's it's the typical taste the rainbow thing with a uh, faucet coming out of the rainbow and Skittles pouring out of the uh, mouth of the faucet. So there you go. Then again, uh, it's the 90s again, and it's got that, like I said, the sort of Jack Davis type, you know, art style advertisement for Coca-Cola. Except this time, instead of street hockey, it's it's almost a very Bad News Bears looking baseball game going on where the kids are not only tagging people out, but having dogs on the field and having people drink Coca-Cola while they're playing. Really? really 90s. I wish I knew who did this artwork. It, like I said, it looks like typical Mad Magazine Jack Davis stuff, but I know it's not him, or at least I assume it's not him, but it's for Coca-Cola, and couldn't we all use a Coke and a smile? Well, we could all use a smile, and hopefully this next issue, Green Lantern Corps quarterly number three, 
will give you a smile. And hopefully these next couple of promos will give you smiles as well. Since the day Bruce Banner was bathed in gamma rays, he has fought the creature within. The creature torments Banner. The creature is unstoppable. The creature is incredible. Now, the countdown has begun to Banner's greatest confrontation with the Hulk. And all of his internal battles have come down to one moment. One final chance to reclaim his life and be whole. And three words will change the Hulk and Banner forever. Honey, I'm home. Bigger. Smarter. Greener. The Hulk is taken to new heights as writer Peter David delivers an all-new phase for the Jade Giant. And Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, is bringing it all to you. Join J. David Weider, Lee Busby, and Michael Bailey as they turn a new corner and cover the all-new, all-different Incredible Hulk. Find the Ultimate Hulk podcast experience weekly at iTunes and at IncredibleHulkHomepage.com. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast. Experience the epic like never before. Well then, uh, Scott, can you do me a favor? What's that? I've got an episode coming. Let's see. It's called Magnus Remembers uh, Superman Returns, so uh, don't listen to that episode. It, this is all kind of, it's all part of my Superman Begins like miniseries that, I, that I'm uh, going through, or was going through. This is all part of the uh, lead up to Man of Steel coming out on Blu-ray, right? Mm-hmm. I've got two little interludes. Uh, the first... Lucy, shut the f*** up! <laughs> Sorry about that, it's the dog. Trent is Magnus punches reality at twotruefreaks.com Discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows. Trent is Magnus punches reality every Tuesday at twotruefreaks.com No animals were harmed in the making of this promo. And we are back. And by the time you hear this episode, I'm going to be assuming that Trentus Magnus has made his migration from his own site to the Two True Freaks feed. And we welcome Trentus to the show. His his podcast has just been knocking it out of the park. I'm loving it. I really am. And I'm so glad that we've got Trentus on the feed. And it's great to have him along. Uh, if you haven't tre- checked out his podcast, definitely do because, well, it's on the same Two True Freaks feed, so you really have no excuse to. But plugging people's shows out of the way, let's go ahead and get into our coverage. In fact, maybe dive into our coverage. <laughs> You'll get the pun later. Of Green Lantern Corps Quarterly Number 3. It was cover dated Winter 1992 and released on or about October 20, 1992. The cover price was $2.50 US, $2.95 Canada, and a pound in the UK. The title was, for the first part, The Book of Stories, written by Gerard Jones, penciled by M.D. Bright, inked by Ro- Romeo Tangal, lettered by Albert Guzman, colored by Anthony Tolan, assistant editor was Eddie Braganza, and editor was Kevin Dooling. Sitting around a campfire with the newest batch of Green Lanterns, Kilowog prepares to roast a marshmallow, or perhaps a non-sentient white gelatinous blob, you never can tell, when one of the recruits asks him to tell him a story. The bruiser from Bolivax Vic looks over his trainees, and after an extensive bout of pointless dialogue, he begins the first tale for the night. 
Now, like most of the previous issues of Green Lantern Corps Quarterly, the book starts out with a little interlude dealing with, you know, what's been going on in the Green Lantern books and basically setting the story up. This one deviates a little bit in it's not based on the Book of Oa, but Kilowog telling stories to the recruits. Bright and Tangal are doing some amazing art here. It really looks good. And the coloring, I think, uh, I've got to give credit to the colorist as well uh, in uh, Anthony Tolan in giving it a sort of, well, a very campfire-ish feel with the orange sort of permeating the colors of all the people. It's a nice little beginning to the book, and it's pretty much stereotypical of the way it's going to be set up throughout the rest of the run. But before we move on to the rest of the stories in the book, I'd like to take a look at the cover really quick. The cover has the typical sidebar with Alan Scott and Nort, you know, telling the uh, stories that they're going to be, or telling about the stories that are going to be covered with them in the book. But the main image is, it's really kind of weird. It's about the first story, which is about a Green Lantern who's a, well, a sentient vegetable, and it looks like he's gone a bit mad. The artwork is decent uh i guess it's uh eye-catching color or cover but i don't know the entire idea of sentient plants just kind of hit or miss with me but we'll get into that in our like i said in our first story which was entitled depth charges and it was written by michael chan friedman penciled by dave cochran inked by brad vancata lettered by albert guzman and colored by steve Matson. The story opens with a seahorse iguana Green Lantern thingy flying to planet Fluvian to bestow a Green Lantern ring onto one of its inhabitants. The Lantern sees that there are two sentient vegetables on the water planet, the poor, shallow-dwelling Olan and the more developed, deeper-living Efal, and decides to approach an Efal to make the new lantern of this crime-ridden world. The first Efal he approaches, Lin Sinar, is honored, but declines due to recently obtaining superpowers through a very flash-like activity. Iguana Seahorse Lantern searches out the runner-up to be Green Lantern and finds another Efal, Dob Zagil. Zagil gratefully accepts the ring and goes about training how to use it. After a period of time, Iguana Seahorse Lantern leaves the planet in the capable hands of Dob but the power goes to his head, and in the course of trying to clean up crime on Fluvian, he ends up oppressing the underprivileged Olan to the point of almost being a tyrant. Of course, superpowered Lin Sinard steps in to defend the unjustly persecuted Olan, and the two begin the underwater, veggie-fueled Fighting McFeinstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, with a final outcome of Dob getting trapped in an explosion in Lin's lab and Lynn taking on the mantle of Green Lantern and bringing actual justice to the planet. Now, this wasn't really too bad of a story. I mean, kind of wonky with vegetable creatures, but that's kind of what you expect with these sort of Green Lantern core books. You know, when you're not dealing with the humanoid people, you're given, uh, well, free reign to write whatever kind of characters you have. And I think Jan or Michael Chan Friedman is a great choice to do this. He is an accomplished science fiction writer, and this is a good example of some of his work. It's a typical hero's trope that we've seen elements before, especially in this show with the desire to maintain order corrupting a Green Lantern, uh, Sinestro at Emerald Dawn 2, the reluctant hero, 
Kyle Rayner, and an accident that gives someone superpowers, i.e., you know, Wally West, or not Wally West, but uh, Barry Allen as the Flash. Uh, Dave Crockram's art is really nice, but you really kind of have to pay close attention to know who the characters are, although that might be due to them being so alien. Since they're not distinct humanoids, uh, it gets a it takes a couple of reads to really get who's who going on in this. I guess I should also mention that all of the story takes place underwater, which also makes it kind of otherworldly. But it's an interesting idea and a, a decent tale of a alien Green Lantern. Uh, going on to notes, we'll just go ahead and sort of skim through a few. Uh, through a few. On page 7, panel 3, I've got to be wondering where they came up with an idea of an accident that bestows superpowers on someone. This seems completely unprecedented, and I don't think this has ever happened ever before in the DC universe. Completely original, right here. Page 8, panel 3. I've got to assume that another one of the reasons that Dobb was the second in line to be the Green Lantern list planet was not only for his bravery and courage, but also for the fact that he already had the prerequisite domino mask as part of his facial design. So, I guess that always helps when you're being selected as Green Lantern. Page 11, panel 1. In the dialogue boxes here, this is where the book gets a little bit heavy-handed. They basically say that the disenfranchised or the poor Olan creatures on this planet are the ones who are responsible for the crime on the planet. In fact, Dob here believes that all of the Olan are responsible for them, which essentially leads to his tyranny and basically deciding to not really wipe out. Initially, he wants to wipe out all of the Olan, but he can't. So he just threatens all of them with his ring-based powers. It's, it's one of those things where you get this idea in your head, much like Sinestro did in Emerald Dawn 2, and you try and stop crime in your own radical way and it ends up turning out like this but for me the concept that being poor makes you a criminal just doesn't sit well it's a very simplified view of it and i i think michael jan friedman is better than that but maybe it's just his political view and i try not to get political on the show but there it is but other than that, that's all the notes I really have for it. The artwork is nice. Like I said, Cochran did a good job. But a little bit of heavy-handedness at the end with uh, the idea that the Olan, that the underprivileged are responsible for crime and need to be punished is... I know what they're trying to get at, but I don't buy it. The next story for the book is the Alan Scott one. and It is entitled Old Friends, and it's written by Roger Stern, penciled by Dusty Abel inked by Mark McKenna, lettered by Bob Lappin, and colored by Matt Webb. In the business office of Gotham Broadcasting Network, Alan and Molly Scott have a ring-powered video call with interstellar cabbie Doipy Dickles, while downstairs in the lobby, Jay Garrick tries to schedule a meeting with the Golden Age Lantern. Having no luck with guard, Jay changes into the Flash and speeds up the side of the building and into Alan's office. Pleased to see his old friend, Alan welcomes the septuagenarian speedster, and Jay mentions that this visit isn't for pleasure, as he asks the couple to suit up. Cut to the grave of Diana Lance, where the assembled members of the Justice Society, Green Lantern, Harlequin, Starman, The Flash, 
Hawkman and Hawkgirl are assembled to pay their respects. Each team member tells of how much she meant to them, and how proud they are that her daughter is carrying on in her tradition. Farewell said, the team goes their separate ways, with Alan and Molly deciding to head to Merg to meet with Doiby. A quick jaunt through hyperspace, and the couple are on the planet ruled over by the diminutive Doiby. The, the group take in a traditional baseball game, where Alan is forced to show up former villain Prince Peril by beating him with ring construct baseballs, and end the night at a replica of the original Gotham Broadcasting Center. As the couple prepare to dance the night away, they remark that although they would have loved this trip into the past, they're happy with their lives together in the present. The Alan Scott stories in these quarterlies have just been absolute gems. From Stern's writing to a Bell's art, this really hits that cinemal spot that I and I hope many other readers have for the classic heroes. The story deals with the death of Golden Age Black Canary, but that's a big can of worms that I am not going to get into. Her continuity is really bizarre. But the idea of reconnecting with your past and yet moving forward is a wonderful tale, and it's definitely done by these creators. But then going into notes, I've got a few notes on this story. Uh, page 24, it's really great, and Abel does a really good job of drawing the individual characters of the Justice Society. And I think this is actually one of the first times since, I want to say, the Golden Age, that we've seen Harlequin, the actual Harlequin, in her costume. So, it might not be the Golden Age, might be she may have been it in the uh, Justice Society or the All-Star Squadron era, but I'm not really certain. But it's a really nice splash of all the characters of, well, all the characters assembled of the JSA here to pay their respects to Diane Lance. Then on page 26, the top panels have some individual headshots of the JSAers, and Abel gets them perfectly. They all look different. They all don't look like the same stereotypical headshot. They all look older, but they don't look decrepit. They look like heroes that could and probably would kick your ass if they needed to. Especially Hawkman. Hawkman and Shara. In fact, we get an image of Hawkman with his helmet off, and he looks awesome. And he looks older, and... A bell is able to pull that off in this book so, so well. Plus, uh, another thing on the panel nine on here, not only do we get uh, a shot of uh, uh, Molly and Alan mourning over the death of Diana Lance, but we get a shot of them going to uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne's grave, and so they're paying respect to that as well. And plus, also here we get a uh, nice backwards or a nice uh, rear view shot of uh, Molly Scott and I'll go ahead and say it for a woman her age she's pretty damn hot yep I said it there so all you gilf lovers out there can be all excited about that page 29 I know the characters aren't photo reference necessarily but they do look like actual characters here and in this one panel, it looks like Doiby looks a lot like Jimmy Durante. And Alan, from the side, looks like a very blonde Ronald Reagan. And it's nice that they're putting reference or, you know, referencing actual people to draw their characters. It's not necessary, but it's kind of nice here. And it 
it looks good. I don't know who Molly would look like, but with the hat, I would think maybe an Audrey Hepburn, but I'm not really certain. Eh. But the artwork is just really gorgeous in this book. And then finally for the story on page 33, Alan and Molly get dressed up for a night out on the town, and it's, it's just perfect. The relationship between them, the dialogue by Stern, the artwork by Abel, it's, it's wonderful. It's showing a loving older couple in the DCU that totally, totally works. In other words, f*** you, Dan Didio. But le this leads us into the Nort story, which was entitled, Norting But Trouble. Yeah. It was written by Jeff Bailey and Marty Golia, penciled by Joe James, inked by Barbara Kahlberg, lettered by Albert Guzman, and colored by Anthony Tolan. The story opens with what would happen if any sentient bipedal dog had a Green Lantern ring. It would spend its off time chasing jet planes. Making some depth acrobatics, the pilot shakes off the schnauzer stowaway, causing him to drop into a lake near Littleville, a town where crime takes a holiday. Hoping to show off his celebrity status, Nort heads into the town only to find that its eponymous title isn't in effect at the moment, as quote-unquote supervillains Strobe and the Fisherman arrive to try and rob the savings and loan. Nort steps in to stop them, but instead gets reprimanded by the local police. Unwilling to be taken to jail, Nort follows the criminals to their conveniently marked hideout, where he engages in some McFightenstein with Strobe, Baron Tyranno, the Fisherman, Lamplighter, and the Terrible Trio, until he finds that the entire group is there to, as a way to attract tourists to the impoverished town. Not certain if all of this is legit, Nort flies off to inform the Justice League, leading to a presumably epic fight between the teams. Or probably not. Now, like previous episodes in the uh, Green Lantern Corps quarterly, this was another fun story with another twist ending and the villains actually bringing tourism into the town. According to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, this is the two writers' only credit ever in any comic. So Jeff Bailey and Marty Golia, this is their thing. Uh, and I would tend to believe Mike's because he does a pretty good job at uh, cataloging this stuff, so... It's a fun story, and I guess it leads into some stuff that happened in the JLI books, but yeah, there it is. But other than the fact that this was just a fun little one-off story with Nord in it, the only real note about this is, I guess I really need to stop ragging on Ron Mars for coming up with ineffectual Green Lantern villains. Because the characters, or the writers before Ron Mars came on, came up with some even worse characters. We've got here the Fisherman, which is, I guess, a guy in... Imagine the Gordon's Fisherman, but evil. And not the Gordon's Fisherman from, you know, I Know What You Did Last Summer, but comic book done. A character named Strobe, who, I guess has light powers and has yellow armor. The terrible trio, which are guys in business suits with, I guess, a fox mask, a some sort of bird of prey mask, and it looks like a dolphin mask. Ugh. 
Then we've got a la the Lamplighter, which is uh, basically a Paul Revere person with a domino mask and a, some sort of wand that shoots light beams or something. And Baron Tyranno, the guy who's actually trapped inside an iron lung and sends out clones of himself to go do his work. We covered him, oh, in that episode of Green Lantern's Light that I did a while back. Yeah, these are not even C-list villains. And these are the ones that Green Lantern had to take on. You kind of wonder why Sinestro is the only one really remembered. But this, of course, leads us into the final story in the book, which was another Whatever Happened To story called Whatever Happened To Charlie Vicker. It was written by Gerard Jones, penciled by Tim Hamilton, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Albert de Guzman, and colored by Steve Matson. On the planet of Huagaga, uh, the locals are lining up in droves to watch the famous Shakespearean actor Charlie Vicker do his alien-themed version of Macbeth. However, the locals do not know the great thespian's origin, which of course will be related to them by some jerk during the performance. Charlie was an actor on Earth who got lucky enough to play the character of Green Lantern in some sort of TV show. However, unlike Ryan Reynolds, this brought him fame and fortune, which led to him becoming a drunk, which led to him asking his brother to fill in for him for the role of Green Lantern, which ended up getting his brother killed. As it would. Grief-stricken, he asked to become a real Green Lantern so he could avenge his brother's death and beat some ass in his off time. Charlie earned the respect of the Corps and was made Lantern of the Sector for which Hwagaga was in. Unfortunately, the planet was attacked by the Tebans, who Charlie fought off against the will of the Guardians. This, of course, pissed off the little blue imps who took away Charlie's battery right in the middle of the battle. But Charlie wasn't beaten, and he convinced the Hwagagans of the power of acting, which allowed the race to rise up and defeat the might of the Tebans. The only notes I have on this, acting, it can save a planet, or not. Uh, the story is okay, and the art is nice, but uh, I could really care less about this self-centered jerk who decided it'd be a good idea to let his brother take on the role as Green Lantern in his television story so he could go out and drink and cavort while his brother got killed because someone thought he was the actual Green Lantern. Plus... Acting! It can save us all. I mean, did Alec Baldwin ghostwrite this story? Ugh. Anyhow, the book ends with Kilowog and the recruits, sitting around the campfire, marveling at the amazing tales of the Green Lanterns. Eh, it's a nice book. I would say this one is probably one of the better ones. Uh, it had more effective stories in it. The Charlie Vicker one, you know, not so great, but... You can't always have the better stories in there. I mean, three out of four isn't bad. Plus, it didn't have stupid, stupid Muppet bugs in it. So, that's always a bonus. But, that does it for these issues, and I hope you guys will come back next time, because next Friday we're going to be covering another Green Lantern book in Green Lantern 90, which is the Genesis crossover. No, it doesn't have anything with Phil Collins reconciling with Peter Gabriel and him coming back to the group. It's the uh, God Wave thing and Dark Side's involved and 
Dasad's in the Green Lantern book. So, hooray. Plus, we also get in the Green Lantern Corps Quarterly the first Green Lantern story written by Ron Mars. And there should be some similarities to his work in the Green Lantern books of current time. Well, I say of current time, of current time in the 90s. So, it should be a fun look at uh, Ron Mars' first work with Green Lantern. Granted, it's not Kyle Rayner, but there will be some similarities here and there. But I can't wait to get to that next week, and I hope you will come back. So make sure you set your iPods or whatever you listen to this on for next Friday, where we'll be covering another couple of issues of Green Lantern here on Just One of the Guys, a member of the Two True Freaks family of podcasts. Bye, everyone, and have a great weekend. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two. And you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Somebody Put Something in My Drink by The Ramones, off their album Animal Boy. As usual, if you'd like to buy this song, or buy the album that the song is on, the best way to get around to that would be to go to Amazon.com. The best way to get to Amazon.com is through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. Since you're downloading this show, and hopefully downloading it from 2TrueFreaks, you can just go to the website, click on the banner in the upper left-hand corner of the website, and you'll be directed to Amazon.com, where you can download the song, buy the album, or download the entire album in MP3 format. And whenever you buy something from Amazon.com, when you use the link at 2 a small amount of your purchase price goes right back to the website. It doesn't cost you anything at all extra, and it really, really helps us out. So whenever you think about buying something from Amazon.com, make sure you go through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com.